I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15 and verse 21. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 21. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And our subject is the price of forgiveness. But we look today at some of the events around Calvary and the atoning substitutionary death of Christ. We will not look so much at the atonement today, but the circumstances around the crucifixion. We've noted already the uh, amazing about turn or swinging round of the multitudes. One moment they are for Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Most believe him to be the Messiah. They've welcomed him the previous week into the city of Jerusalem with great acclaim. But now they have swung completely round and they've been brought to shout and to yell against him and for his crucifixion. What a change. Their hearts are revealed. While he was among them as a great healer, and thousands were healed, they were for the most part behind him. Not the people who were described in the Gospels as the Jews, because that word, particularly in the Gospel of John, is used in a rather special way to refer to the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and not all the people, the population generally. Most people were for Christ and supported him, and they were fascinated and well entranced by his preaching. No man spoke as he did. His illustrations, his parables, his deep utterances and epithets, they hung on his every word for hours, even without being fed. And of course they observed his miracles. They didn't understand that he was a spiritual messiah because the teaching was corrupt in those days, as you know. And their clergy, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted the notion of a messiah as referring to a political messiah who would deliver the nation from its subject state under the heel of Rome and make it great once again. So they expected a political messiah. Yes, a healer, a man of miracles, a man they couldn't understand. There was no army building up, no armed force, nothing of that kind. And now, once they see him treated like a criminal, arrested, and he's submitted to that, he's allowed himself to be arrested and humiliated and bound and tried, and now they see him tied, flogged, bleeding, debased, and they turn against him with the persuasion of the chief priests and the scribes, and they begin to shout and to yell against him. And that is the scene around verse 21. They compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, Why did Christ 
have his cross borne for him. And no mention of the bandits, the thieves, who were executed with him having that aid because he had been especially scourged and flogged by Pilate and the lictors who beat him and flogged him, the professional floggers among the Roman soldiers, used those whips with many leather thongs and pieces of metal tied to them until the wounds ran with blood and the flesh lay open and an exhausted Lord and Saviour, pale, was dragged into bear his cross and they needed to solicit someone to carry it for him. That was the condition and the state. He hasn't been crucified yet and he's bleeding and lashed. And verse 22, they bring him into the place Golgotha, which comes from Aramaic through Greek and it's transliterated here as Golgotha. It's a hill a mountain, if you like, a great hill, probably the one on the northwest side of Jerusalem, outside the gates of the old Jerusalem. But it isn't absolutely certain where the location is. There's certainly a craggy, rocky hill there that uh, years ago, before the rain misshaped it, would have resembled something of a skull. Golgotha. Translated differently in the King James Version in the Gospel of Luke, where the same place is called Calvary. And that comes from the Latin translation, derives from that. Golgotha, or Calvary. Mount Golgotha. Mount Calvary. But Christ was no doubt executed with the thieves at the bottom of that hill where the road ran, where there was, we read in the text, passers-by, people of traffic as usual, and of course the great crowd out of Jerusalem. There were those that passed, those that were gathered in a great multitude to see the execution the place of a skull. Verse 23, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, bitter myrrh, which was intended to deaden the pain somewhat or to calm it. But he received it not because he was the saviour of the world and he had to drink the cup He had to feel the full agony and pain, not only in his body, but much, much, much more in his soul. The pain unknown to us of separation from his father. Of course, he was God, God the Son. He was God as well as man. And God cannot be separated from God. We know that well enough, but in a wave that we cannot look into, he had to experience the sensation of separation from the Father, which would have been an agony and a suffering beyond the capability of human words 
to describe. So he received it not. He had to bear the eternal weight of punishment for his ransomed people. And verse 22, I'm going to come to the real essence of the matter in a moment. When they had crucified him, nailed him through hands and feet to that cross, they parted his garments, casting lots. Verse 25, it was the third hour and they crucified him. It's nine o'clock in the morning by our reckoning. The third hour in the Jewish timetable, and they crucified him. And the superscription, verse 26, of his accusation was written over, the king of the Jews. There's little more to it than that, as the other Gospels tell us. Don't forget, Mark is writing a tract, and he abridges many things, because he's aiming at writing an evangelistic tract, not a full statement, under the inspiration of God. The king of the Jews. Now there's no doubt that while Pilate, the Roman procurator or governor, tried to secure the release of Christ and appealed repeatedly to the chief priests and to the crowd to let him release to them Jesus of Nazareth, while he tried to do that, he still put this superscription over Christ with a measure of contempt. The king of the Jews. In Pilate's estimation, who were the Jews? A conquered people, crushed by the might of Rome. A subjugated people. And here was one who was said to be their Messiah or the King of the Jews. Well, if we're required to, if we have to, if you say that he would have been behind an insurrection, well, reluctantly, we'll do what you Jewish leaders require, we'll execute him, but we'll also do it with Roman contempt. Look, look who we're executing. At the command of Rome and the Roman procurator, with great ease, the king of your nation, down you go. In Pilate's estimation, the superscription is a mark of contempt. Mere Jews, the people of God of ancient times. But isn't it extraordinary? At Calvary's cross, everything has another sense. Because while he meant it in derision, and while the Jewish leaders protested, they wanted him to write, no, 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 don't put that, the other Gospels tell us so. Put, he said I am the king of the Jews. That's what they wanted. What was written was the king of the Jews. So, the picture there on Calvary was right, even if they all intended it to be wrong. It was right, the king of the Jews. Who is a king? A lord and a judge. 
And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the other Gospels tell us. Behold, the judge, the Lord, the ruler, not only of the Jews, they would be judged for their rejection of God. There would be thousands of believers among them who would be saved. But the nation as a whole would be judged. And within 40 years, Jerusalem would fall. And the temple would be destroyed by Titus, by Roman armies. And the city would be sacked. The judge of the Jews, they executed the Lord, the Saviour. The title was right, though it was meant as an insult. And it was thought to be inadequate. And everything about Calvary has this double description. And we'll look on at it. And I want to talk then a little more about the scene. And we come down to verse 27. And with him they crucify two thieves. The one on his right hand and the other on his left. What did they intend? No doubt there was collaboration The officers of Pilate said, we intend to crucify him with two insurrectionists and thieves, bandits. Barabbas has been released, but two others are going to be executed with him. Then he'll look like a criminal. Then this will look by justice, like justice, numbered with criminals. And the chief priests would have been pleased at that And between them, I'm sure, they would have collaborated to bring about a picture on Calvary which is understood by us quite differently. There he was, a fulfillment of prophecy, a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, that he would be numbered with transgressors. All would be in accordance with prophecy. And the picture to us is of Christ identifying with sinners, the friend of sinners, crucified amidst and with criminals. And that's what he is, the saviour of fallen men and women. And he identifies with us in our most criminal state on Calvary's cross, The superscription is true. The whole image and symbolism of his execution speaks truth. There's that dual meaning all the way through. Calvary, the orchestration of God, the picture painted by Almighty God, but they didn't understand it. I come down to verse 29, and we look at the reaction of the people. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging or shaking their heads and saying, Ah, this was derision, scorn. The people who cheered him to the rooftops, now they look and they, I think, this wagging of the head 
is uh, a good idea in translation. Our trans- King James translators lived long ago, and they could have said, he sh- shook their heads, but they've chosen wagging. Because their idea is, and I think this is probably correct, that the head was wagged from side to side as they motioned, look at him, look at him. It's in derision, don't you see? And the King James translators have hit upon something in choosing this unusual word. Look at him. It's scorn. Ah, or as we might say, aha. Look at this. The one who was going to destroy the temple, he said, misquoting him. He was so powerful, he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Aha, look at him. That's the scene. That's the derision. How they've swung round. Of course, he never said he would destroy the temple, literally and raise it up in three days, he would destroy it by permitting the Roman armies to destroy it within 40 years. But uh, that's not what he referred to. John's Gospel tells us clearly he referred to the temple of his body. He was speaking about his own death. He was telling the Jews that he wouldn't be long with them. And later he'd return. He was speaking in veiled terms about his own crucifixion and suffering and dying on Calvary when he said, destroy this body and I will raise it up in three days. But they believed the literal use of the quotation. You that said you'd destroy the temple. That's what the chief priests had spread about and they grabbed hold of it just like we do. If we're unbelievers, we grab hold at anything that reinforces our unbelief. Any idea, any theory, any teaching that can explain the world and creation in purely material terms, we clutch hold of this so eagerly the chief priests were putting around he said he'd destroy literally the temple and renew it in three days and they clutched hold of this as evidence that he was absurd yes but they had greater evidence of his authenticity in every family virtually someone had been remarkably healed people who were so desperately handicapped The dead had been raised, the blind had been given sight, lepers had been cleansed, amazing things had happened. They'd flocked in huge crowds to be healed. And against that, they put the misquotation of the clergy, put out by the clergy, and they believed that in preference. Aha, thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. They couldn't see what he was doing. They didn't understand it. They had Isaiah 53. 
They had other passages of the Old Testament. They were trained in telling them of the one, the suffering servant, the Messiah, prophesying his coming and how he would suffer and die a vicarious death on behalf of many. Christ himself had not long since taught the disciples, it's in Mark 10, that he would give his life a ransom for many. And they didn't understand it. They saw his crucifixion from afar, from a distance. The women and the apostle John alone stood up close near the cross. All the others had fled. His mother and the women were alone were close up. But they'd heard him say it clearly. He was going to suffer and die. He would be a ransom for many. They should have seen what was going on on that cross. They didn't see it. But these, the crowds, actually scorned it and reviled him and insulted him. The higher purpose. They didn't see he was atoning for sinners. They didn't see the greatest act in the history of the universe, even greater than the creation of the universe, even greater than the ultimate destruction and renewal of the universe. The suffering and death of God the Son on the cross of Calvary, bearing the eternal punishment of sin for millions and millions of people, compressed into the space of six hours so that we may be forgiven and made new. They didn't see the magnitude and the astonishing loving kindness of that act. The higher purpose. If I may just move for a moment to something much, much smaller, we don't see the higher purpose so often the higher purpose of God in life. If I may be personal for a moment, but this could be the experience of anyone. Getting on for 40 years ago, I acquired a, a, an illness, a sickness. It was an electrical problem at first, an electrical problem of the heart, a, a rhythmic problem. So I would suffer from arrhythmia. And it was very disturbing and disruptive. And as time went on, you felt bad too, very bad. And all kinds of <clears throat> medications, powerful medications helped, but they didn't eradicate it. They didn't help altogether. And for about 15 years... I was uh, reliant on these medications just to subdue and to keep things in check. And then after about that time, the uh, procedures, new procedures came along and I underwent those and that improved things a lot. But there's always been some problems left and some limitation and so on. And now it's approaching 40 years. But this 
the, the truth of what C.H. Spurgeon once said, the best blessing in life is to have good health. The second best blessing is to have ill health. And that is true. As a Christian, because you come to the Lord in prayer and he enables you to function, if that's his will, and he enabled me to carry on functioning in the ministry and preaching. And I had, over the years, and still have, many remarkable answers to prayer. But I'm not just talking about myself, because there are many, many fellow believers here who have exactly the same experience. That when we've been afflicted in some way, the Lord has undertaken, and we've proved him in prayer. And it's been an amazing source of guidance to us. There were all sorts of things I had wanted to do and longed to do and might well have been able to do, but for this. So it's directed such energies as I've had into certain channels. And God has blessed in that way. So I've seen help and guidance. I'm not presenting myself as an object of faith because I've failed in this, believe me, many times. But when I have called upon him and prayed so often, I've been helped and enabled and directed. And as you look back across now nearly 40 years, you see this has been a source of tremendous help and spiritual experience and encouragement. God's purpose. He had a purpose in it. Call it, if you like, a higher purpose even. Now I hope you have good health. And if you have, don't squander it. Give your strength to the Lord. Serve him. Make him your priority. And the education spiritually of your family and their blessing. Serve him. But if it's taken from you, there may be a higher purpose for you to prove him and to be guided by him. But I come back to the great example of this, the higher purpose. Look at what they said to him. They wagged their heads and in verse 30 they said, save thyself and come down from the cross. All they thought about as being important was the preservation of present life. Save your life. Live now. Live for now. This is all there is. That's all they could see. Not the higher purpose and what he was doing. I wonder, I just wonder if there were some people who understood. At the birth of Christ, there was old Anna, and there was Simeon, and God gave them eyes to see, and they knew he was the Messiah. And they knew that babe was born of God. He would be the saviour of the world. 
and the saviour of lost souls. He was the eternal king. He would come and he would bring about the fall and the rise, the fall of ancient Israel, the rise of the New Testament Church of Christ, the new Israel. They saw it. Of course, they were long dead. The years have passed. But God is never without witness. I wonder if there was an Annas, a Simeon, at the crucifixion, not recorded. I wonder if Mary understood what the disciples didn't understand, the mother of Christ, or even Mary Magdalene, who was honoured and privileged to be the first to see the risen Lord. I wonder if she understood. This is Isaiah 53. This is the one wounded for our transgressions. I wonder if the other women, who were also privileged with seeing the risen Lord in due course before the disciples, were there people who understood And as those people shouted out, come down from the cross, they murmured in their hearts, no, Lord, stay there. Die for our sins. Take away the curse. Make it possible for there to be a new nation, an eternal people in the glory everlasting. Take my sin away. Bear away the punishment for our sin. I think there would have been, but I can't tell you that for sure. It's only speculation. Come down. No, don't come down. Because they just began to grasp the extent of what was happening and the amazing nature of that transaction that Christ was dying to bear away our sin. Well, that's the passers-by. But what about the chief priests and the scribes? Verse 31, Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, they were crying out, Prove to us that you're the Messiah by living coming off the cross and remaining alive. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, says here they said it among themselves. The other gospels make it clear that they went on to shout it aloud at him and towards the crowds, urging the crowds to shout similarly. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. What are they shouting to their judge as well as their saviour? He saved others. That's tantamount to a plea of guilty. They knew he saved others. They knew he'd healed thousands of people. They knew it. They'd witnessed it from close quarters. Often they'd been in the front row 
And they hardened their hearts and they said, he does it by the devil. He's empowered by the prince of the demons. The gospels tell us so. That that's what they said. They hardened their hearts and now they give it away. He saved others. Let him save himself. Himself he cannot save. But here's the double meaning. They didn't know it. They were full of scorn and hatred and contempt and insult. They didn't know it. But what they said was absolutely correct. He saved others himself. He cannot save. Cannot in a different sense. He could have done. He could have done. But he cannot. Why can he not? Because he wants to save millions. His will is to die for their sin. To take their punishment to set them free, to be their sin bearers and their substitute. And if that's what he wants, and that's what he's determined, and that in his mighty love is what he wants to do, he cannot come down. And what they said was true. He saved others to do that himself. He cannot Save. They meant it one way. But the double sense is true. To save others, he cannot save himself. But then they go on and they say, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross. They say it contemptuously. That we may see and believe in his own way in his own time, that's exactly what he did. He died. He finished the work. He took the punishment. He yielded up the Holy Spirit. He tasted, that's a good word, he tasted death. And on the third day, he shattered its chains and broke its bands and rose from the dead and lived again and appeared the resurrection appearances and ascended into heaven and demonstrated he was alive all afterwards by the mighty power that he gave to the apostles and the bringing about of the New Testament church from the day of Pentecost. That's exactly what he did in his own way in his own time, having accomplished the work, you might say he came down from the cross and he lived. And thousands of them did believe, but by no means all. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 soon afterwards, many, many others in a long train after that, converted Jews, 
Then the gospel opened to the Gentiles and they begin to flood in, in the world of those days. And the church is extended and travels across the known world. He did exactly what they said to demonstrate that he was the prince of life. The double sense running through even the events. Our time is out, dear friends. We can look at some of these things another time. I wanted to consider just the three hours of darkness. The crucifixion began at nine in the morning. At 12 noon, there's the three hours of darkness that extend to three o'clock. Deep, deep, profound darkness, like an eclipse, but much more dark. What turmoil that would have created. It was across the land, throughout that region, that particular land. Three hours of intense darkness from noon to three o'clock. All the shouting would have been brought to a halt. Such total darkness, the Jews had been taught by their prophets, signified judgment. Is this judgment? Could they run? Could they go home? To make sure all was well, how would they see? They hadn't come out with torches and lights at noon. They didn't know where they were. Your eyes normally soon grow accustomed to darkness. And you can see just a little from the ambient and remaining light. But not this darkness. This was like a dark room. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't move. There was silence. The three hours of profound, intense, unfathomable darkness and silence. Why? A token of judgment. Judgment had fallen upon Christ instead of us. God in heaven endured for three hours the scorns and the shouts directed at his beloved son dying on Calvary. And after three hours he said, Silence! And they were terrified and silenced. And it signified that something was happening beyond human language or understanding, the intensity of the suffering of Christ, the experience of separation from the Father, terrible, terrible things, as though hell had come to him for us. And then he yielded up his life. Just a glimpse of the surroundings of the sufferings of Christ. Love him, dear friends. Live for him. Owe him everything. Christ of Calvary.